single avocado has as much fiber as most people are getting in half of their day. <laughs> Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, we are back with Dr. Will Bolschwitz today for a part two on gut health. I'm so excited to bring this to you because I know that so many people at the moment are tracking their blood glucose levels. I've done it. I think it gives you incredible insights. Um, But I think we've almost become a little too preoccupied just with that metric and whether that might be the cause of insulin resistance when in fact there is a whole other theory around insulin resistance and this is around lipotoxicity and also the health of your gut microbiome and Dr. Wilby is doing some amazing work with Zoe where they're looking at your gut microbiome in conjunction with your blood lipids and your blood sugar to put that information together. Um, It's a really, really exciting project that you're going to hear more about on today's episode, but also we're going to be diving into the health of your microbiome, what lipotoxicity is, how that causes insulin resistance, and what free fat is, and why you need to be thinking about that if you really want to protect against things like insulin resistance and inflammation in the body. So it's another jam-packed episode with Dr. Will B. If you haven't listened to the first one, that was episode 153. I definitely recommend you go and listen to that first, um, episode 153, and then listen to this one, which is part two, where we dive deeper into the science with actionable steps, tips that you can start taking away and using straight away. And if you're interested in metabolism, we did a whole month on metabolic flexibility in my membership, the Female Biohacker Collective. We're coming back again in the fall to do that one more time, um, really in response to members. They wanted to dive deeper into the science and really enhance their results even further. So if you want to be a part of that, we would love to see you over there. You just need to head over to AngelaFoster.me forward slash biohacker. That's AngelaFoster.me forward slash biohacker to join myself my health coaches and a wonderful community of like-minded women who are all looking to optimize their health for longevity and higher performance. But now without further delay, let's join Dr. Will B. So it is awesome to have you back on the show, Dr. B. I'm so excited. We're back here for part two. People absolutely love part one. And I felt we left it a little bit unfinished because we didn't dive into kind of the way that Fats affect our microbiome, affect our cholesterol levels, affect the way we metabolize glucose and things. And so I'm really delighted to have you back. So firstly, a warm welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me back, Angela. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about all of these things. It's fun. Yeah, I'm really excited too. Um, So let's kick off straight away. We were talking just before then about this concept of lipotoxicity, which I think a lot of people haven't heard about and is something they should be aware of. Could you kind of briefly explain what that is? I think... Angela, that one of the things that's very important because there there is an explosion of insulin resistance or insulin resistance related conditions um, taking place right now. We see this not only in adults, but also in children. And there are estimates that uh, the majority of people are going to either have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes in the coming years, mm-hmm. at least in the United States. That that this This is how prevalent this is becoming. And so you're going to hear a lot of talk about blood sugar, uh, a lot of talk about diabetes and insulin. And I think it actually is very important for people, given how common this is becoming, to actually understand what's going on under the hood and to understand what these things are that we're talking about. So 
that's where this concept of lipotoxicity comes in, which is that when people talk about insulin resistance, all right, let, let, let me start with this insulin resistance. What, what does that mean? Um, well, insulin resistance, when you consume a meal, it's the expectation that your blood sugar is going to go up. And the blood sugar going up, it could go up to varying degrees, depending on what exactly is in your meal, right? Like when you eat a sweet, like you eat, you know, uh, uh, peppermint or something like that, that is going to spike your blood sugar a lot more than if you were to eat something that is high in fiber or is low in uh, carbohydrates. So when our blood sugar goes up after a meal, the body detects this. The body has uh, mechanisms in place to help to keep things in balance and bring the blood sugar down. And the response is basically that the pancreas will release insulin. Insulin is a hormone. It's actually a growth hormone. And um, it is designed to take the blood sugar that's in your bloodstream and force it into other places. Specifically, where it's trying to put the blood sugar is into your muscle and into your liver. So it's not that the blood sugar like disappears from your body, it still is a part of your body. It's more so that the blood sugar is being pushed into a different place and get and it's removed from the bloodstream so that your blood sugar doesn't go too high. And so um, when the body is in balance, this is working efficiently, a minimal amount of insulin is able to drive the blood sugar out of the bloodstream, and you keep things the way that they're supposed to be. When insulin resistance develops, what's happening is that your body is producing this insulin, but it's actually struggling to achieve the effect that it's trying to achieve. The blood sugar is not leaving the bloodstream so easily. So more and more and more insulin is being basically created by your pancreas in order to get the blood sugar out of the bloodstream. That's insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is prediabetes. When you reach a point where your pancreas is producing insulin as much as possible, and it still can't get your blood sugar under control, you now have diabetes. That that is what diabetes is, is where you and by the way, this is type two diabetes. So to be clear, not to make it confusing, but type one diabetes is a different condition, where the body does not produce insulin. And so they don't have this intrinsic protection. So they have to they have to actually use uh, insulin replacement in order to achieve the same effect. So, but when we talk about type 2 diabetes, the root cause of type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance. When you have insulin resistance, you have prediabetes. And when your blood sugar gets too high and your body can't control it because basically it's maxed out the amount of insulin that it can produce, now you have crossed the line and now you have type 2 diabetes. Okay. With that framework in mind, what is going on that actually causes this? What causes insulin resistance? And the answer, the, the prevailing theory right now is lipotoxicity. Lipotoxicity, um, 
It's something that people can read about. It's not hard to find information on this. And I think it's very important because a lot of the concepts or ideas that you hear in the wellness space, they actually don't make sense when you when you put them into this framework of lipotoxicity. So what lipotoxicity means is that when you have fat in the bloodstream, we call it free fatty acids. These free fatty acids will actually block the movement of blood sugar into these muscle cells or into the fat, or I'm sorry, into the liver. And um, the way that that works is that basically the fat is going into these spaces freely, like the fat is drifting and going into these places freely, where we want the blood sugar to go. So like, for example, the fat could be sneaking into the muscle tissue. We call this intramyocellular fat or it could be sneaking into the liver tissue. So many people who have, for example, type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes, they have fat in their liver. You can actually see it on an ultrasound, yeah. right? So this fat is going into these places and it's taking up residence in a location where we're trying to put the blood sugar. Yeah, because the liver and the muscles are the primary first stores, right, for this glycogen. Yeah, exactly. So these are so the, the liver and the and the muscles are the tissue are the tissues where we're trying to store our blood sugar. And they become a part of the endocrine organ. The fat is there. It's it's basically blocking the movement of blood sugar out of the bloodstream and into these tissues. And therefore we need more and more and more insulin in order to achieve this effect. Can I ask so, you quickly on that? When when that's happening, where is the blood sugar at this point? Like is it so it's if you've had a meal with fat and, and sugar contained within it, and the fat is kind of coming through into the liver and the muscles, is this now holding or is it now circulating in the bloodstream waiting to go in and the pancreas is just producing more and more insulin to try and shuttle it in into the cells? So um, when, you, when you consume a meal, uh, what is going to happen? All right. There, we have to separate out the carbohydrates in our diet from the fat in our diet and understand that <clears throat> the response of your body is going to depend on whether or not you have this insulin resistance. So the things that feed into this insulin resistance, which we can talk about more in a moment, um, they are creating a framework where whatever happens with your blood sugar, your body is going to struggle to control it. Now, the second part of this equation is the carbohydrates. And I, I just want to warn everyone, like, I feel compelled for us to unpack this more than what I'm about to just to say right now, because it's going to make it feel like the carbohydrates are the problem. And what I'm saying is the, the problem is not the carbohydrates, the problem is the insulin resistance that needs to be addressed. But when you have the carbohydrates, let's pretend you could have 40 grams of, I'm just using simple numbers, 40 grams of carbohydrates, 80 grams of carbohydrates, 120 grams of carbohydrates, right? This is a different amount of carbohydrate that your body is basically having to deal with. So when you have a meal that's mixed, that includes fat and protein, that by definition is going to include less carbohydrates. So you're asking the body to do less work in terms of controlling the blood sugar and controlling what's happening with these carbohydrates, right? But in the process of doing this, you may actually be making the insulin resistance worse, if that makes sense. 
So these two things, they're not separate. They're interconnected, all right? And what you do with each of them ultimately is going to parlay or, or translate into what your blood sugar shows. And so um, this is the reason why, you know, uh, a person who has insulin resistance, if they consume a like high carbohydrate meal, and specifically, when I say high carbohydrate, I'm referring to um, like sugar, you know, or white flour. All right, when you do these simple carbohydrates like this, you're going to spike your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. because you have this insulin resistance. But what if we could control the insulin resistance? This is this is sort of the main point, I think, from my perspective. Mm. What if you could control the insulin resistance? What if you could take that out of the equation? What if you could get back to being in balance? Well, when the body is in balance, then you can consume those carbohydrates without restriction. And I, I suppose there's a few questions here that I want to come into. I guess the first one will be is, Insulin resistance, then, how do we control insulin resistance? And Thank how can we get back on track? <laughs> Thank you. So, okay, so let's go into this framework of lipotoxicity. And what I am saying, okay, now I, I realize like this is super nerdy. So I apologize to the listeners. Uh, I can't help but be a little bit nerdy on this topic. <laughs> I think but, you'll enjoy it. Okay, cool. Um, all right. So when it comes to lipotoxicity, right, lipotoxicity, when I say this, when I express this term, I'm basically saying insulin resistance. And the key here is the level of the free fat. Now, when I say free fat, stop for a moment. I am not saying fat in the diet. This is not a one-to-one -one translation. This is a separate thing. So separate these out. I'm not saying fat in the diet. I'm saying free fat in the blood. Okay. What increases free fat in the blood because it's the free fat in the blood that ultimately is going to translate into insulin resistance. So let's look at that. Like what is driving that up? Because that ultimately is going to give us the answer that you're asking me, like what causes insulin resistance? Okay, a couple of things. First, when a person is obese, and they're carrying excess body fat, you know, our fat cells, I don't know if people realize this, we're born with a certain number of fat cells, it's basically a place for us to store energy. And it's not that we create new fat, what we do is we fill up the fat cells. And those fat cells, believe it or not, have a point at which they can't take any more. And this occurs in people who are obese. And when this happens, basically what happens is the excess fat that the fat cells can no longer handle anymore, it starts pouring into the bloodstream. So you are adding free fat into the bloodstream. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, free fat in the bloodstream, this translates into insulin resistance through this lipotoxicity mechanism. Okay, this is the reason why just to kind of like show people like, how this makes sense. This is the reason why people who are obese are more prone to type 2 diabetes. And what about people who are not obese and you see insulin resistance? Uh, we, were, we were talking ourselves previously, uh, you know, I was diagnosed in my 20s with PCOS. That seemed to occur looking back because I was just prescribed birth control by, by my doctor uh, right from, the teen from my teenage years, right? And these cysts were accruing and then they diagnosed insulin resistance as part of that in my 20s. I'd never been obese. I was always kind of slim, quite lean, actually. How does that occur in an individual? 
This actually happens in my wife's family. My, uh, hopefully she won't hear this podcast. She might not be happy about it. <laughs> my mother-in-law is real thin. I mean, she is real thin. She is tall and she is skinny. And yet she has insulin resistance. Uh. And it runs in the family. And it brings us into talking more about this free fat because the mechanism of getting free fat, one of the mechanisms is obesity. It's not the only mechanism. The other mechanism is through our diet. And our diet, I'm going to talk in a moment about the different components that can drive up free fat. Um, you know, that like sort of the choices you can make from a dietary perspective. But let's pause on that. And let's talk instead about the microbiome for a moment. Because the microbiome, ultimately, is related to the way that we process our food. And actually is a part of establishing what our blood sugar is after a meal and also what our what our uh, blood fat is after a meal so the microbiome is like centrally involved in this entire equation that you and I are talking about right now which is our metabolism and so what that means is that a uh, just using my mother-in-law as an example, not necessarily you, Angela, but you know, a a tall, thin woman or man or whoever it might be, someone that you don't view as having a metabolic issue, there may be something within their microbiome that could be inherited from a genetic perspective, but could also be just translated and passed down through families. There could be something within their microbiome that basically they have a disproportionate release of free fat after a meal. Interesting. Can you fix that then? Like, could eating more fiber fix that issue and rebalance? Or would it be a case of taking specific like probiotics? How would you? And I know you've been working because there's some really like Zoe here, I think, is waitlisted, isn't it, in the UK? But there's yeah. really, really interesting tests from what we were saying last time where you can use a CGM combined with testing the fat in your blood combined with a microbiome test to see what's going on, right? I'm super interested in that. I mean, I, I would love to talk about that more because a lot of what I'm referring to right now, many of the things and many of the uh, studies to back up the, the words that are coming out of my mouth actually are coming from research that we have done as a part of Zoe. And um, and we can talk more about what Zoe is and how it and how it's involved in sort of optimizing this. But it actually what you just asked me leads us into actually a perfect um, conversation about this, which is that. So you, Angela, are a unique person. Um, it's not just your genetics. In fact, believe it or not, you and I share most of the same genes like more than 99% of the same genes you and I share, but it's more so your microbiome that makes you very unique. If you had a literally identical twin, okay, that person has the same genetic code as you, the same mother, um, in most cases grows up in the same household, and you would only share about 35% of the same microbes. 
Wow, really? Even in the same household before you've left home, only about 35%. Isn't that interesting? 35% of the same microbes. That's so you are more different than you are the same. How interesting. And um, there are 8 billion people on the planet now. And we believe, like, sincerely, from a scientific perspective, that there are no two people that are the same in terms of their microbiome, that we are that unique and individual among 8 billion people, like not even two people that are the same. Wow. So um, that unique individuality is a very relevant part of explaining our unique responses to food. Everyone knows there is no one size fits all mm. when it comes to nutrition. Mm, and, definitely. you know, it's not to say that there aren't rules, you know, the world doesn't get turned upside down. There is no person out there that eating cupcakes is actually like making them live longer. Right. I mean, let's not be ridiculous. But but the impact of cupcakes could be different for different people. Some people, it's not going to cause as much of an issue as others. Right. The impact of certain foods could be different for different people. Um, and so what you're doing is you're you're basically identifying how specific foods interact with a person's unique biology. Well, this is the question that we uh, sought out to understand with Zoe, which is that, can we explain this? Can we look at a person's microbiome and simultaneously understand what they're eating, what their blood sugar is doing, and what their blood fat is doing? Because as you can tell from our conversation, going back to the beginning where I'm trying to unpack lipotoxicity, what I'm talking about is there's blood sugar, there's blood fat, and they're actually interconnected. They're not completely separate, right? So this is all one part of our big picture metabolism. And is actually, interestingly, it's quite scary. I always say like, bio, you know, bioindividuality is key because a lot of people would automatically jump to the conclusion, well, what I must do is go on a higher fat diet. But what's interesting is that the way you metabolize those fats, right, plays a part. And when I looked, for example, we know I'm sensitive to sugars, and that might be my microbiome as well, but I've also tested my genetics, and I am highly sensitive to carbs, but I'm also highly sensitive to fats. So in this situation, in somebody who then also has a degree, I don't know if I have insulin resistance now, but, you know, was diagnosed originally, I've really kind of looked after my diet, but at that point, going high fat could actually have been more of a disaster with, with that background. So uh, if we think about it in terms of going back to the free fatty acids, and we think about this in terms of insulin resistance specifically, not necessarily what your blood sugar is doing, but specifically talking about insulin resistance and your ability to process and metabolize um, sugar. Uh, the free fatty acids, they can come from obesity. We talked about that before. But then the diet, here comes the diet as being this driver that determines what's going on with these free fatty acids. And the main thing in the diet that's going to drive up free fatty acids that people need to know about is um, saturated fat, you know, even worse, actually, the worst is trans fat, trans fats are mm. the worst. But <laughs> thankfully, we all like this is like one of the few things in the nutrition world that every single person will agree on is trans fats aren't healthy. Okay, cool. So yeah. we're on the same page there. But in addition to trans fats, saturated fat, saturated fat really appears to drive up uh, free fatty acids, and therefore, predispose us to this insulin resistance. And so where does saturated fat come from? 
the principal source in most diets in the US and the UK is actually animal products. Like saturated fat is the dominant type of fat that you will find in animal products. You'll also find it though in coconut, uh, coconut oil, and palm or palm oil. And what I'm saying is that, so like olive oil or avocados or nuts, they have fat, but the fat is not mostly saturated fat. And it's really, to me, it's the saturated fat that is the principal driver of the free fatty acids after a meal. So what I'm saying is that people who, for example, go keto, could, could you go keto and emphasize olives, olive oil, nuts, avocados? Could you do that? You could. That's not what most people are doing. Mm. Most people who are doing keto, they're going very, very high on the saturated fat. And that's because their diet becomes, you know, again, 70, it's most people would do 70% fat, 70% of their, of their macros are fat. And um, usually that's made up of mostly animal products, plus some like processed foods that are keto friendly. And if you check the label on those processed foods, I would imagine that in many cases, you're going to find coconut oil or palm oil. Mm. And what about like um, omega-6 fats? So because you could, you could, if you're going very high fat, you could also go quite high omega-6 inadvertently, right? Through different kind of seeds, seed oils, um, nuts, things like that. Um, where do you come out on that? And how much would that contribute to it? Well, so it, it contributes. It doesn't contribute in the same way that um, separated fat contributes to lipotoxicity. Okay. Uh, Omega-6s are a different topic because I, I so let's um, step away from the insulin resistance for a moment and let's let's take on the omega-6 question that exists. Okay. So um, omega-6 and omega-3 fats are called essential essential fats. And what that means is that we as humans are not capable of producing them, but we actually need them. So we need omega-6s. We need omega-3s, but what we also need is we need balance between the two of them. Because when you have a disproportionate amount of omega-6s and very few omega-3s, well, that's not balance. Mm. And when they're out of balance, that's actually when they become inflammatory. And we don't have the problem of having a loss of balance with excess omega-3s and not enough omega-6s. That doesn't exist. Right. And the reason why that doesn't exist is because people are consuming a lot of processed foods. And the processed foods will many times contain seed oils that are very, very disproportionately high in omega sixes, but have, you know, in most cases, little to no omega threes. And so, so this is, uh, I view this as a bit of a separate issue. Can it contribute to free fatty acids? Can it contribute to insulin resistance? Yes, it can, but not in the same degree that saturated fat is going to be contributing. But I still think that we need to rebalance these things. And quite simply, the way that you rebalance them is not super complicated. You need to reduce your intake of these seed oils. Specifically, I think that it's by reducing ultra-processed foods. Like that to me needs to be the goal, reduce the ultra-processed food intake. And then we need to turn our attention towards the omega-3s to make sure that we're getting those. How do we get those? Well, we can get those through 
Omega-3s are kind of interesting, Angela. So quick comment on Omega-3s. Most people, when they think Omega-3, they think immediately like knee-jerk fish, mm. right? It's true. Uh, cold water fish, like salmon, are high in Omega-3s, specifically DHA and EPA, which are very good for us. But it's not actually because the fish is producing the omega-3s. The fish are kind of like us. They don't have the ability to create omega-3s out of nothing. They are eating plants. So all omega-3s originate from plant sources. In the case of the fish, they're consuming plant sources in the ocean, like algae. And there's also land-based plant sources of omega-3s, like some of the classics are seeds like chia and flax and hemp and walnuts. But and some people, they're a bit, they're, the fish are better at converting, aren't they, to DHA and EPA? Like what we see is some people genetically are less good at making that conversion. So um, this, this, this gets us into even more of an interesting conversation. Yes, yeah, so there's this three, there's three omega-3s. ALA, EH, uh, ALA, EPA, and DHA. And there's a conversion process that goes between them. And we need the, the EPA and the DHA um, in order to get what our body needs. And if you were to just eat chia flax and hemp, they would be produced, those are ALA. And then your body needs to make the conversion into these other three, into these other two. Okay. Your body, in terms of making that conversion, is affected by levels of omega sixes. This is the issue. So it's not just an it's not just a genetic challenge. What it is is that your omega six intake is actually competing with the ALA in order to make that conversion. So if you have a, we're supposed to be like close to one to one, or maybe two, three, or four to one in terms of omega sixes relative to omega threes. That's where we're supposed to be. Most of us are like 12 to 1, 15 to 1, with a really poor diet, 20 to 1. Think about that. Like, yeah, it's high. Parts. I think I even saw some research in America, like <laughs> some people that are eating. And don't get me wrong, we're, we're like on that same path here, 100% in the UK, but like almost as high as 30 to 1, right? Which is in a very, very processed diet. <laughs> think about that. 30, 30 parts scary. to every one. I mean, mm. that, is, that is completely absurd, right? When it's scary. supposed to be like somewhere in the range of four to one or less. So the problem is that all those omega-6s, they're actually saturating the receptors that are the enzymes allowing us to make the conversion away from ALA into these other two forms of omega-3s. So one of the tricks, one of the tricks, Angela, is that you reduce your omega-6. Because if you bring this back into balance and you reduce your omega-6, you will actually increase your EPA and DHA by simply doing that without even changing your omega-3 intake. And then improve your conversion rate. And you improve your conversion yeah. rate. Not and you're having course, more plant-based sources. Mm, right. Interesting. Now, uh, about plant-based sources. So um, I think omega-3s are very important. I don't believe that the only healthy way to get omega-3s is from plant-based sources. So don't get me wrong here, okay? They did originate as plants. All omega-3s originated from plants. So, but like it's easier for people to get it, for example, from fish than it is to get it from plant-based sources. 
the problem that we have is that we're overfishing the ocean and it's a it's a population growth issue we can't sustain the the number of people that we have on this planet if we all go pescatarian it's not like that's not an option and also there's restrictions here actually it's quite hard like scottish salmon actual open uh, to go and get it from the open water is quite difficult now in the uk because of those fishing regulations because we've overfished so now they're kind of farming them in big uh, in big locks. So some of them are based in the ocean, but they're in these big locks. So but then you're thinking about what are the fish fed? And that comes down to the farming process. And it's quite scary because I was speaking to our fishmonger uh, recently, and he was saying that the, the price of it is just being driven up so high, even on the good quality farms, because now all the grocery stores in the UK, the supermarkets are buying really, really cheap farm salmon. And these farmers are going out of business. And yeah, and then you've got the plastics, right? It's, it's, it's actually quite scary when you start to really dig deep very, into it. It's very scary. And, and so... Um, so how can we how can we do this, you know, in a because uh, sustainability has to be a part of the conversation. It has mm. to be the ocean. Angela, you and I were not that old. You're younger than me, but yeah. we're not that old. And yet the ocean is different today relative to where it was when we were kids. And so sustainability has to be a part. Of, this is not me being a hippie. I'm really not a hippie. This is just me being real. We have to include this in the equation. So like, what can we do? From the ocean that will that will fulfill this for us um i would actually make a very compelling argument for oysters really? right? oysters i find oysters to be super interesting okay because you can actually like have oyster farms where you plant them so that you can meet the demand that exists when you plant them they're not creating waste or harm within the ocean they're actually cleaning the ocean believe it or not and if you look at many of the nutrients that we're trying to acquire from They're a sea source, right? Th this is what you get. You get the omega-3s, DHA and EPA. You actually get zinc. Yeah, I was going to say zinc. You get vitamin B12, right? So you get all of these wonderful things. And if you go and you start to investigate what is the single most sustainable source of seafood on the planet, it's oysters. Is it? Interesting. I, I get slightly freaked out by the uh, propensity for norovirus with oysters. <laughs> That's the only thing, because you can't tell, can you? Well, um, oysters are served in different ways in different places. So I'll give you a quick example, Angela. I grew up in uh, the Northeast, like close to New York City. And up there, oysters are always served on the half shell, so they're raw. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you serve anything raw, you're going to be more prone to some sort of transmission of infection. But um, I moved to the south, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina, which is in the southeast. And by the way, we have uh, a lot of oysters here. We're, we're kind of known for this here in Charleston. And because we have a lot of oysters here, it's become a cultural tradition within this area that I live, where people do something called having an oyster roast. Yeah. And they will steam the oysters. Do they, they taste cook. good? Yeah, they taste great. They? Really? How interesting. I've never ever had a cook. I've never had a raw oyster. Really intrigued because they are so dense in terms of their nutritional quality on many levels. And like you say, with things like zinc. But I didn't know you hadn't even it hadn't occurred to me to cook an oyster. Right. It's and crazy because so we to, cook other forms. You could fry them, right? Mm. You could fry them. You don't have to. Um, but like there's many different ways that you can 
basically prepare oysters, I think is kind of the point. And the second point is that they are completely sustainable. If we increase our oyster production, we actually would be cleaning the ocean. If you increase your consumption of oysters, you actually would be consuming less fish, most likely, which would allow the fish populations to come back. You know, when we leave the fish alone, the ocean would rebalance itself. And so it's, yeah. it's not, that's the issue is like, if we could just give them a little bit of breathing room. Yeah, exactly. They can like do that. the job. Right. Interesting. And what about with the, I've got a couple of questions here. With the plants, and then I want to come on to something around blood sugar spiking and whether actually there's a reason to do it sometimes. But with the, the plant-based uh, diet, okay, and fiber-fueled, do you think that someone who is, let's say someone who has a degree of insulin resistance, as they start to eat more fiber, even slim people, right? Like we were talking about your mother-in-law, uh, myself, um, by eating more fiber and more plant-based foods, including starchy carbs, can we reset our microbiome, do you think, and retrain our metabolism that we can actually be, we'd be better at processing these carbs? A hundred percent. Okay. And is there a protocol for doing that? Uh, Zoe. <laughs> Zoe. <laughs> I need to get my hands on a Zoe test. <laughs> well, Zoe um, and also the things that I teach, right? So the things that I teach. So let's, let's think for a moment about sort of this um, picture that I've painted where part of the story, even though we're talking about blood sugar, part of the story is the fat and part of the star story is the sugar, right? And these things are interconnected. So I mentioned a moment ago, before we diverted into omega-6s and omega-3s, I mentioned that blood, the blood fat, it comes, part of it is coming from our diet. And part of it is coming from how our microbiome interacts with our diet. What does fiber do? Fiber helps to slow the release of fat. Fiber helps to slow the release of sugar. Fiber helps to support a healthy gut microbiome. We are firing on all three cylinders. This is why dietary fiber is um, so good for people with metabolic disease. And if you think about it through the lens of Zoe, so with Zoe, we are um, taking a person's microbiome, their blood sugar, their blood fat, and looking at what they eat. And we're making personalized recommendations. Now, what's interesting is our, our recommendations are, are not like, hey, what does Dr. B believe, right? They didn't take my idea or Tim Spector's idea and translate it into this product. Instead, what they did is they took a population of, like we have over 20,000 people now that are a part of Zoe and climbing very quickly because in the UK, y'all really like us. And there's a lot of people signing up in the UK. Like it's like sign people are signing up like crazy. People are going on the wait list like crazy. And so what's happening is we are growing this database, Angela, where in the database are, are you know, again, like 20,000, soon to be 30,000 people that have given us all of these, um, uh, variables, all of these factors. And we let the supercomputers, we let the machine learning algorithms ultimately spit out the solution. And it will spit out the solution on an individual basis. So Angela, 
when we get you hooked up with Zoe and you do this, it's going to tell you, hey, Angela, this is where you're at. And these are the foods that are preferred for you. But I'm going to make a prediction. You're going to find that when you look at this list, the top scoring foods are going to be the high fiber foods. Mm. And it's not a coincidence. And that's not me. I didn't choose that. That's the computer choosing that for you. But that's because fiber, fiber is good for blood sugar, fiber is good for blood fat, and fiber is good for your microbiome. So we can fire on all three cylinders when it comes to improving your metabolism when you consume fiber. Yeah, so interesting. And does it make probiotic recommendations or is it all like dietary based? It's dietary based, so no specific probiotic recommendations. But the other thing that we're starting to dig into is lifestyle. So we're, we're starting to, you know, we are, um, here's what's exciting. We are a company that looks to continue to learn constantly. So we have never stopped in terms of growing, in terms of education, and how we can help people uh, improve their health. So some of what we're starting to get into now is like timing, like meal timing, like what time should you eat? Or like snacking. What's the scoop with snacking? Is it good for us? Is it bad for us? Well, guess what? When you have more than 20,000 people who are giving you data, we actually have the ability to answer questions like this using science, using numbers, not just us like making stuff up. And um, so it's exciting because part of what we offer is I would describe it, Angela, as citizen science. And basically what that means is not just you, but any person who participates in Zoe, you are a part of this team that allows us to accomplish these studies. You know, uh, the scientists like myself or like our uh, chief scientist is Sarah Berry. She's at King's College London. She's brilliant. Or Tim Spector. You know, we're all working on this behind the scenes. But if there were only 100 of you who were doing Zoe, it would be worthless. But because you are a part of our team, we do it together. And then we can do things like publish papers that anyone can benefit from. And we can do things like we can say, hey, Angela, um, based upon our data using over the 20,000 people, here is what we see in your personal, unique gut microbiome. We're not giving you recommendations based upon what is good for the average person. We're giving you recommendations based upon you. This is what's best for you. It's super powerful, super powerful. I'll tell you what's interesting, actually. I have a, a kind of free questionnaire people can do at your total health check and, and of the people that I've surveyed. So on that, around 18,000 people have taken it. And I think it was 88% of people said that they were storing a degree of abdominal fat. 88% right, of people out of 18,000. That's a lot of people that are not managing their metabolism their blood glucose, their like stress, cortisol plays a part of their lifestyle. Right, and, and, and I just think, I think how much this is going to help people because it's now truly bio-individual, right? You're looking at their blood fat, you're looking at their, um, their blood glucose, you're looking at their microbiome. And if you then factor in that with lifestyle recommendations in terms of managing stress, it can solve a lot of people's problems. Oh, I think, I think that the potential is tremendous. And um, this is a big part of the reason, to be completely frank with you, why I wanted to be a part of this. So I, the, the story for me is that I 
published Fiber Fueled, my first book in May of 2020, and it blew up and became a New York Times bestseller. And it has since sold over 200,000 copies. And um, when that happens, doors start opening. And I had choices. And it's like, is the choice about money? Or is the choice about doing something really special and transformative? And I chose that choice. Because by working with Zoe, I feel that we are moving us like we are the premier company in personalized nutrition on the whole planet. And we're running the largest nutritional study in the entire world, <laughs> the largest microbiome study. Yeah. And um, I, I believe that we are in the process of moving out of the era that has been the entirety of human history, which is one size fits all nutrition recommendations into a new era where we can actually, like you mentioned a moment ago, Angela, give recommendations that are personalized to you and not someone else. Yeah, it's amazing. And really, really changed the landscape for health. Um, it's amazing. I love it. I love what you're doing. Um, a, a couple of questions. One question I have, because this I think is really interesting to think about, is what about, are there times when actually spiking our blood glucose would not be a bad thing and having a fast-burning carb? So what I'm thinking of particularly here is when you have deliberately depleted muscle glycogen. So you've been to the gym, for example, you've either done a high-intensity workout or you've done a heavy strength training session and refueling with some fast burning carbs actually can help with things like hypertrophy and increasing muscle mass. Uh, and, and that obviously has a different mechanism as well. It kind of activates GLUT4 in terms of moving the glucose into the cells. In that situation, are there situations where if people are wearing a CGM, actually maybe it isn't as a, much of a concern if you're seeing a spike, but it's coming back down very quickly? Because at the moment, okay. everyone sees the trend seems to be, I mustn't spike it, I mustn't spike it type thing. Yeah, well, I think first of all, when we talk about spikes, we have to first ask, like, what is, what is normal, right? Mm. Because your blood sugar is going to go up after a meal. And the fact that it goes up does not make it inher <clears throat> inherently bad, right? It's just if it's a disproportionate spike um, where it goes to an abnormal level that's when it becomes problematic and that's what i would caution people against is you know when you're interpreting your cgm don't automatically interpret every rise in blood sugar as being implicitly bad um, it's only if it's rising to a level that is outside of the range of what we would consider to be healthy so um with that in mind you know couple things. First of all, like when would, for example, simple carbohydrates be good? So you mentioned you burn your glycogen reserves, right? That's actually where simple carbohydrates are good, because your body is looking for a source of energy. You know, this is the reason why when you think about like, what are those pouches that runners consume when they're running a marathon? And it's like mid race, and they need something? Well, those are simple carbohydrates. Yeah. And in that situation, that's exactly what their body needs. Right? But when we're talking about immediately post-exercise, you just finished smashing a great workout. Well, I would make the argument that you don't just want simple carbohydrates there. You want protein. Yeah. And But there's a place for balance between those things. You don't necessarily have to have protein in isolation. This is where like a nice, healthy, plant-rich meal can be perfectly situated where you just had a great workout 
And now you're going to eat a plant-rich meal that may include tempeh or lentils or things that are higher protein-based plant foods, but it also is going to have the fiber that your body is craving. And your, your muscles are in a position to basically absorb all of this and take it. And, um, and then Would you it keep that deliberately low fat then to avoid kind of fat kind of shuttling in through first or will the fiber moderate that? I think when you have the fiber in that particular, so uh, staying low fat, I, I don't generally advocate for a low fat diet. Mm. All right. I also don't advocate for a high fat diet. Um, I advocate for fiber and fiber is a carbohydrate. So in a way I'm advocating for healthy versions of carbs. I fully agree that like cookies and sweets, they're not good for us. Like I'm not advocating for those kinds of carbs but I am advocating for, for fiber. And when we consume fiber, it can include healthy fats, nuts and avocados. They have healthy fats, but guess what? Like an avocado is super high in fiber. Yeah, A single avocado has as much fiber as most people are getting in half of their day. This <laughs> <laughs> is quite scary. Yeah. And what about um, things like when you see, and you see this in processed foods, but they sort of sweeten it, these sort of polyols and things like multilol. What kind of, I'm not sure I'm even pronouncing it correctly. These what about sugar. these? They cause a lot of people to be, yeah, the sugar alcohols. A lot of people yeah. get gassy on them. Oh, Is there, time. what have you found in terms of how they're affecting the microbiome and those versus things like artificial sweeteners? Well, there's many of them, and some of them are artificial sweeteners. Some of them are... Um, sugar alcohols that have been extracted from natural sources, but the the extraction from that natural source is inherently unnatural. Mm. See what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, even though it started in an original source, you, the end product is not natural. If you can't do this, if you can't do this without being a biochemist or a food chemist, then that is not natural. I'm sorry. Mm, I agree. And um, what you're doing then is you're basically concentrating these things in an unnatural way. And so whether it's artificial sweeteners or it's sugar alcohols from natural sources, when you concentrate them, there are a lot of people who get gas and bloating. There are a lot of people who get diarrhea. And if you come into my clinic and you say, I'm having gas and bloating and diarrhea, the first question I'm probably going to ask is, do you use sugar alcohols and do you consume dairy? Because if the answer is yes to either of those two, the first step from my perspective is let's get rid of those. And then like, you'd be shocked at what percentage of people are better. I mean, it's actually a very high percentage. Interesting. Interesting. And do you think that they disrupt the balance of the gut bacteria? Yeah, they've actually yeah. shown this, that, that okay. um, uh, again, like this is a big category, so you will find exceptions to this. Um, but they have done studies where they will like, for example, give artificial sweeteners to people and see that it actually impairs insulin resistance. Which is scary, actually, because I don't know in America, but here in the UK, there is a big drive to basically take sugar out of the drinks and encourage people to drink soft drinks with uh, artificial sweeteners. I personally believe in trying to recalibrate. You know, I, I don't want to sound like a prude over here, but um, I personally believe in recalibrating our taste buds to not focus so much on sweets. And when we do get sources of sweets to get it when it's coming packaged with fiber at the same time. So like when I drink my coffee, I don't add sweeteners to my coffee anymore. I did 10 years ago um, and I've gotten very used to it and I love it. I don't miss it at all. 
Yeah. And then when, you when it can comes... recalibrate your toast. I actually like, I love black coffee. I wouldn't add anything to it and actually enjoy it. I think you can. A hundred percent. And like, you know, breakfast, look, you, you have pancakes, right? Okay. If you have pancakes, you could put um, maple syrup on top, right? But alternatively, instead of maple syrup, you could take raspberries or blueberries or whatever you like, and you quite simply like mash them up and put them over a little bit of heat and they turn into a compote. Mm. Yeah, they and then, do. And they taste blueberries when you do that taste actually incredible. It's Amazing. incredible. Yeah, it's kind of, really nice. You still have the fiber. You yeah, have yeah. up the fiber. It's like, it's not, it's not an unhealthy food. It's a healthy food. Yeah. It's like when you take oats and instead of adding maple syrup or honey, you put an almond butter and it melts and just creates this rich creaminess. It's actually really nice. And here we go. Yeah. Amazing. I love it. All those recommendations. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show again and, and doing part two. Super grateful for your time. I know you're very, very busy. Uh, I, I personally love Fiber Fueled. I've been cooking from the cookbook. I can't recommend it highly enough, but please share where can people find you more about Zoe, more about the book and everything else. So you can find me at theplantfedgut.com. That is my website. And from that location, you'll find like, for example, information about my books, you'll get the bonus materials for my books. Um, you can register for my email list. People seem to really love it. I, I um, When a new study comes out, I will share it to my email list because then I can have a more detailed conversation about it. Um, you'll learn more about Zoe there too. So like, if you're interested in Zoe, you should go to my website because um, you can get a discount code or you can just go to Zoe and enter in this discount code. I believe it is will be 10. Will be 10. Will be 10. Yep. We'll and that'll save, that'll save 10%. You can find me on social media at the Gut Health MD on Instagram and Facebook. And Angela, uh, since the last time we recorded, I started a TikTok account. Have you? Yeah, I, I've, <laughs> I've posted like four times, and I have like I have like six followers, but it's the Gut Health MD underscore. So the Gut Health cool. MD underscore. That's me. Okay, we'll link to that as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been really amazing chatting to you again. Awesome. Thank you, Angela. I'll see you. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources, and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body, and lifestyle.